Good evening. I'm Nicholas Paul Breisowitz, Director of Development here at the Long Now Foundation, and as always, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. By a quick show of applause, how many of you out there tonight are stainless steel card-carrying members of the Long Now Foundation? That's, that's incredible. Our membership program is about to clear 10,000 members across more than 60 countries. And that membership really has become the foundation of our foundation. Um, your regular support um, is, is a significant fraction of our overall operating budget every single year, and it allows us to do what we do. So in a very real way, we couldn't do that without you, so thank you. The other significant fraction of our operating budget comes from our annual fundraising campaign at the end of every single year. Like many nonprofit organizations, the Long Now Foundation raises an astounding percentage of our operating budget between now and the end of the year. Um, and this, this regular seasonality means that for 10 months out of the year, we get to do a lot of giving. We get to give away ideas and conversations and content and public space. And for two months out of the year, we get to ask you to help us do more of that. So this year, if you're interested and if you're able to help us do more long-term thinking in the world, uh, I'd like to invite you to either make a special tax-deductible donation or upgrade your membership level or claim one of those bottles of exclusive spirits in the ceiling at the interval. Um, or if you'd like, you can also reserve one of these. Um, some of you may have seen this object before, but this is the equation of time cam, and it's a vital component of the 10,000-year clock. This unique shape is a physical instantiation of a math equation that accounts for the dynamic motion of our home planet across the next 10 millennia. You can almost think of it as the heart of the clock. And a few years ago, we manufactured a limited edition of these, and I'm, as part of our annual fundraising campaign today, I'm excited to announce that we've just launched a brand new custom machined edition um, of the Equation of Time Cam that was manufactured in the exact same clock shop that did a lot of the clock parts. And so if you want to learn more about this piece, you can visit longnow.org artifacts. Check out this and some of our other artifacts. I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now. Um, by the way, one further note on that beautiful equation of time cam that's made out of bronze. Um, the donation that gets it is $2,500. And since the unit cost on those beautifully crafted things is about $900, it's a pretty good deal. <laughs> the conceit of the Long Now Foundation is that we're sort of in the midst of a 20,000-year story of civilization dating back to the first towns and agriculture and dating forward to uh, what remains to be seen and what remains to be done. And as a consequence, we're sort of in love with historians uh, who are all about telling the long story in ever new ways. And civilization's story is basically a story of argument, <laughs> uh, swarms of arguments. And these arguments get played out in terms often of power. Uh, there's an argument about economic power, there's arguments about political power, arguments about military power. And from time to time, arguments about the whole mode that power gets played out in. And that's what we hear about tonight from historian Neil Ferguson.
I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Thank you very much indeed, Stuart. It's a great pleasure to be here tonight. Thank you for braving the air to join us. You may have heard it announced today that the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner will no longer feature a comedian, but a historian, which made me think that perhaps history was the new comedy. <laughs> I, I, I do not intend to give you stand-up tonight. Uh, let me disillusion you. What I, I want to do is talk about networks and power. I'll be talking quite a bit about what's in my most recent book, The Square and the Tower, but I'll also be trying to go a little further than I did in that book, thinking about what we need to do if we are to manage what has been created the extraordinary giant online social networks made in Northern California in our time. The long now, I guess, is an attempt to situate the present. And I have always admired what Stuart and his colleagues have done in helping us to understand our position in a continuum of human history over thousands of years. But the corollary of the long now is the short then. And the short then is a phrase that hit me as I was hurtling up 280 this evening. <laughs> what I want to convey to you is how near the past is and how relevant it is to the problems that we confront today. And that some of the things that we know about events 500 years ago can illuminate our long now. If you want to get a handle on that relationship between networks and hierarchies that's central to the square and the tower, go to Siena, one of the most beautiful towns in all of Italy, and look at the extraordinary juxtaposition in the center of Siena of the Piazza del Campo, the square, one of the most beautiful squares uh, in all of Italy, and the Torre del Mangia, which casts a long shadow over it. The square is where the people of Siena network, it's where they hang out, chat, informally exchange, whether in a marketplace or even in a, a horse race between the local districts. The tower, 
was part of the Palazzo Pubblico, where the government of the Republic of Siena was located. And one of the ideas I want to convey to you tonight is that we today also live our lives partly in a square, partly in the realm of social networks, but also partly in the realm of hierarchies. I'm a kind of networks person. I've always hated hierarchies. I would have been terrible in the military. Uh, even academic structures of governance slightly unnerved me. I became an academic because it seemed to me that universities were the least hierarchical of organizations. <laughs> and so I kind of naturally prefer to be in the horizontal realm of the, the town square, but I can't escape the hierarchies of universities and of governments. Whether we like it or not, we're all situated partly in the square and partly in the tower. Now, it's a cliché of our time, but like many clichés, it's true, that the world has never been as networked as it is today. And that is, I think, the case. Certainly, when you look at the way that network platforms, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Twitter, the way those companies have built giant online social networks, there's never been anything quite like that before. Today's networks are very large, and they're fast. They operate much more rapidly than previous networks could because of technology. I quite like this visualization of the Facebook network. Put your hand up if you're on Facebook. Go on, don't pretend you're not. <laughs> so, to an extraordinary extent, mankind is on Facebook, 2.27 billion regular users. And this map tries to plot every city pair with what's called a great circle line. And the transparency of each of these great circle lines is determined by the number of friend pairs in the cities. Hence the extraordinary brightness of, of North America where Facebook originated and the extraordinary darkness of the People's Republic of China, where it's still not admitted. We were told, and I think most of us believed it, that if everybody was connected, then everything would be awesome. We are creating a world where anyone anywhere may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. John Perry Barlow, the late lamented, epitomized the libertarian spirit of the, the early internet. And the idea that if we're all connected, it will be awesome, has persisted in much that Mark Zuckerberg has said as Facebook has grown. This was him speaking at the Harvard commencement last year. All people want to connect. The great arc of human history bends towards people coming together in ever greater numbers to achieve things we couldn't on our own. That was the promise. I think most of us believed it. <laughs> and then came 2016. The Annus Horribilis of the liberal internet. Political events 
first in Britain in June of 2016, then in the United States in November of 2016, came as a huge shock because it turned out that the network platforms, that the tools that had been created by Silicon Valley could be used for purposes that were certainly far from utopian. I got to know Evan Williams recently. He's a really nice guy, very impressive. But he said something last year that went to the heart of the matter. I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas, the world is automatically going to be a better place. I was wrong about that. And I think most of us were wrong about that. And I think we all need to say to ourselves, what Homer Simpson often says to himself, well, though. <laughs> the square in the tower is, is about why it all went a bit wrong, and in particular, why both network science and history should have made us much more wary of the promise of a massively interconnected planet. Now, I say network science and history because part of what writing the book helped me do as an historian was to learn much more about network science than I had known before. A lot of my career had been spent writing about networks, partly because I'm temperamentally drawn to them. As I said before, I always found government archives slightly stuffy places, but private papers, the archives of companies, that always appealed to me more. But I'd used the word the word network very casually, like, like most people do. Oh, I'm going out networking tonight. I hadn't really understood the six great laws of network science, and it was when I started to read network scientists' work, like, say, Laszlo Barabasi's amazing book, Linked, or I started to read Nicholas Christakis's work on social networks, I suddenly realized this applies to history. And if we only think about history using these tools, we'll, we'll see it through completely fresh eyes. Once you understand the basic conceptual framework, everything, the present, the past, and potentially the futures that we confront, looks different. If I could graph the social network of you all, as they say in Texas, if I could just know a little bit, maybe a lot about you all, if I could get Mark Zuckerberg to give me all your data, which he, he used to do, but it's got a little tougher, <laughs> then I could graph the network. To me, you'd just be nodes, and the relationships between you would just be edges. And what would be fascinating would be that this would not be a lattice in which each node had the same number of edges as the rest. No social network is like that. There would be clusters. Some of you are quite closely connected. There's a little inner circle of long, now, lifers. And then, then there would be the network isolate, the person who came in here by mistake, thinking it was jazz. <laughs> Doesn't know anybody here. Doesn't know who the hell I am. Bit, bit too embarrassed to get up and go yet. The hub of this network would be Stuart. 
Stuart has the highest betweenness centrality because for any two nodes in this network to connect, the quickest way is almost certainly through Stuart Brown. As I delved into this way of thinking about society and the connections between people, it was as if scales fell from my eyes and I began to see past work that I'd done in a completely different light. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the six great truths about networks, borrowing from the work of network scientists. And then I'm going to do the big analogy. Because if you want to get from the, the long now to the short then, what you need is a big analogy. That's the history piece. And then, in the fourth quarter, I'm going to, um, as you're all beginning to nod off or check your devices, I'm very, I've got eagle eyes for device checkers, so I'll cold call anybody I see on Facebook. In the final quarter, I'm going to tell you what this implies for our present predicament and what we need to do. That's not in the book, so you'll be in a unique position. Uh, birds of a feather flock together. Okay, if we did the social network, if we graphed the network in here, it'd be quite interesting if we found what often turns out to be true of social networks, that there were two rather distinct clusters. There's a great illustration of this point in a recent paper by Brady and, and company, which shows the, the, the extraordinary polarization of political Twitter. And you can see here a, a graph that depicts retweet activity on political issues of American Twitter users. Liberals retweet liberals, and conservatives retweet conservatives, and there's hardly any retweet activity across the great political divide. We used to call it the political center, we now call it the killing zone. <laughs> And for every moral or emotive word you use in a tweet, it is 20% more likely to be retweeted. So if you're wondering why there's so much strong language on Twitter, people have figured that out. This is not a new insight. Sociologists working in the 1970s knew that there was something called homophily. They, they knew it when they studied the networks of friendships in American high schools that were supposed to be racially integrated, but weren't, despite all the efforts of policymakers post the civil rights movement. Self-segregation was going on in these high schools, and self-segregation goes on on the giant online social networks of our time. So homophily is the first law, and it should not have surprised us that creating giant online social networks would in fact create not one happy global community all sharing cat videos, <laughs> but this. Second insight from network science. It's a small world because weak tires are strong. This draws on the work of eminent sociologists like Milgram and, and Granovetter, and the basic insight is that we all have our close circle of family and friends, but the reason that there are six degrees of separation, which started out as a short story and then turned out in Stanley Milgram's work to be true, is that 
our clusters of friends and family are all connected by the, the loose, casual acquaintances that we have. They act as bridges or, or connectors to other people's clusters of friends and family. And Milgram showed in a famous paper from 1967, these are the cheesy graphics from the paper, it was the 60s after all, that if you sent chain letters from random people in the Midwest uh, to a, that were designed to get to a particular individual in New England that none of them knew, it took six or seven steps for the letter to get there. This was the first demonstration of the small world principle that there are roughly six degrees of separation between any two randomly selected human beings. The third insight from network science is that stuff goes viral not just because of its content. I know. You think that something goes viral, the cat video that goes viral, goes viral because it's a cool video. But it's not just that. It's not just the inherent content that matters. It is the structure of the network that the cat video attacks that matters. This is true in the study of, of epidemic disease, and it's true in the study of cultural memes. So that's the third key point to bear in mind. Network structure determines a lot. If you attack the network at the right point, if we give the meme to Stuart of the awesome cat video, it is much more likely to go viral than if we give it to the jazz fan who's too polite to leave. It's all about where you enter the network and what the network structure is like. If there is a node with high betweenness centrality, that's, that's crucial to why things go viral. Fourth point, this is my attempt to distill all of network science into six things I could remember in talks. <laughs> Networks never sleep. Networks are complex adaptive systems with emergent properties and phase transitions. And that's why the bird video at the beginning was so great. Because that's a perfect illustration of what we mean by emergent properties, what we mean by a complex system. If only human beings were as good at networking as birds. And we were always colliding into one another. If it were human beings flying around up there above that field, after 10 minutes, they would have formed two hostile clusters of conservative and liberal birds and have been flying at one another. So this is another important point to remember. There are lots of network graphs in this talk and in my book, but they're just snapshots of things that are constantly in flux. And because they are truly complex adaptive systems, they don't behave in predictable ways. Weird stuff can happen. A network can go from being highly distributed and decentralized to being highly centralized in a matter of days. Example, the great revolutions of modern times. As I try to show in the book, the Bolshevik revolution looked like a massive distributed network sweeping across the Russian empire with minimal coordination. Lenin's message just went viral. But within a few years of the Bolshevik seizure of power, the Bolshevik network had gone from being decentralized to being highly centralized. A dictatorship of the proletariat, in fact, a dictatorship by the party elite. Talking of Bolsheviks, 
And I just made that segue up completely on the spur of the moment. Um, one of the best examples of the, the attack syndrome, the fact that networks attack networks, was the attack by the Soviet uh, communist regime on the elite intellectual networks of my country of origin, the United Kingdom. This is one of my favorite stories in the book. By the way, the book is full of stories. It's, it's actually designed to be read by people with attention deficit disorder. <laughs> I divided it up into 60, six zero short chapters. And you don't need to read them all, or even read them in the right order. Uh, it's it's a designed for people who keep checking their email. <laughs> this is one of my favorite of the stories. It's the story of the Cambridge spies. The biggest success to date including recent events of Russian espionage. What did they do? They hacked an elite network, the apostles, the most elite of all the intellectual societies at the very pinnacle of Cambridge University's social life. The cleverest of the clever, the self-perpetuating elite that still exists today. And the apostles were hacked by a Soviet operative named Arnold Deutsch, who managed to recruit three of its members to the Communist Party, knowing that, as members of the Apostles, they would be highly likely to attain high positions in the British establishment, which they did, including high, high positions in British military intelligence. Networks attack networks, and it takes a network to defeat a network. A line I got from General Stanley McChrystal's book about his time in Iraq. I'm saving the sixth law of networks for just a little bit later. But now, the big analogy. And this is my favorite part, because this is the history part. So what is it like? That's the question you should always be asking about the present. What the hell is this like? And every day, in every edition of the New York Times, somebody will tell you that it's the 1930s. And then in the Washington Post, somebody will tell you that it's the 1970s. But I'm here to tell you that all these analogies with the mid-20th century are of no use at all. Because the structure of the public sphere has been changed so much by the internet that it's nothing like the mid-20th century. Our time. Our time most closely resembles the period after the late 15th century when the printing press, oh, you'll laugh, sir. That's what I like to hear, incredulity. Because it's a typical American response that anything that happened before the United States is irrelevant to the history of the United States. You're wrong. You're so wrong. Let me show you how wrong you are. <laughs> Nothing has happened like the impact of the personal computer and the internet since the advent of the printing press. And here's the proof. If you look at the impact of these two technologies, and there's a wonderful paper by a guy named Dittmar in London who does this, it's incredibly similar. The effect of the technological innovation is drastically to reduce the cost 
of producing content and drastically to increase the volume of content. These two graphs are the same. One for the printed book, the other for the personal computer. What's the difference? The time scale. History today happens 10 times faster than it did at the time of the printing press. But that's the only significant difference, except for one more I'll come to. So the better analogy for thinking about our time is not the 1930s. It's not Watergate. That's all very interesting, but we live in a different time. We live at a time of massive technological disruption of the public sphere, and most of us underestimate it, especially those of us who cling to old ways of getting information, like newspapers made of paper. We underestimate the extent to which our time is a time of communications revolution as dramatic as the time of the Reformation. Oh, yes. This is a scary analogy. It is not a funny analogy, sir. It is a bloody terrifying analogy because when they introduced the printing press into Europe, everything was going to be awesome. Martin Luther, for it was he, just 501 years ago said, if everybody can read the Bible on a printed version of the text in their own language, everything will be awesome. He didn't quite use that, that word. What he actually said was, we'll achieve the priesthood of all believers the Bible speaks of. Uh-uh-uh. <laughs> Not quite what happened. What happened was that, yeah, Martin Luther's sermons were rapidly spread throughout all of Europe thanks to rapid production by printing presses. But so were books like the Malleus Maleficorum, which argued that witches live amongst us and have to be burnt at the stake. That book, the Malleus Maleficorum, The Hammer of Wickedness, was one of the bestsellers of the 16th and 17th century. That's a good example of fake news. <laughs> and it's a good example of something going viral that is a good deal more harmful than a cat video. You know how it is that people are always wanting to tear down statues these days? Have you noticed that? And rename things? Iconoclasm is a typical product of a disruption of the public sphere. Suddenly, we must efface the icons of the previous era. That happened in the period of the Reformation too, as in this illustration of a church getting a full Protestant makeover in Antwerp in 1566. Polarization in the 16th and 17th century escalated rapidly from verbal violence, you're a heretic, no, you're a heretic, no, you're a heretic, into actual violence. The threshold between verbal violence and actual violence is a very fragile fence. And they crossed it, and they spent 130 years crossing it. The wars of religion that persisted from the Peasants' Revolt that followed Luther's Reformation all the way to the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648. I sometimes think we're living through a secular Reformation. It's not religion, but political ideology. But 
it takes a similar form. There's a whole range of different things that we now categorize as hate speech. Well, in the 16th and 17th century, you didn't say hate speech, you said blasphemy. What we are experiencing, though it hasn't yet escalated to the levels of religious warfare, could. Because there's no obvious reason why the polarization process that I've described to you should stop. It's always important to think ahead to what Stuart will ask you. <laughs> so, obviously, there are all kinds of differences between my short then and, and the long now. One of them I've mentioned already, everything happens 10 times faster today. That's good news. They had 130 years of religious conflict. We should get it down to 13. They had the 30 years war, it'll only be three for us. There's another. So here's a really interesting thought that I had writing the book. After the printing press was invented, amazingly, it, it stayed a distributed network. And people didn't sell ads on most of what was printed. Very few ads on Luther's sermons you'll find. And that's the big difference between then and now. We thought that the internet was going to remain a decentralized thing. Tim Berners-Lee's vision of the World Wide Web was just like the birds flying around. Nobody's in charge. Everybody's just flying together. Woohoo! And then it turned out that unlike the printing press, you could centralize the internet. You could centralize the software. You could centralize e-commerce. You could centralize social networking. You could centralize digital media. The internet was supposed to usher in this wonderful era when we were all going to be netizens. Do you remember that? Seems like another world, doesn't it? We were going to all speak truth to power on our personal blogs, all, all at once. It's going to be awesome. And then the best blog would be netizen of the year. Seems like a hundred years ago that we believed that stuff. Instead, what happened with amazing speed was that a relatively small number of near-monopoly companies took over the internet, took over the World Wide Web, and they created hierarchical structures. I love these org charts because they're authentically funny, and whoever did this cartoon is really cool. Because they, they have a sort of grain of truth in each case. Um, and anybody who's worked for one of these companies will, I think, attest to that. But the point is that what we thought was going to be a decentralized, distributed, awesome, cool network where we'd just be adding nodes and, and blogging, with amazing speed became hierarchical. Because remember, phase transitions, emergent property, it's a complex system. It was never going to stay the way Tim designed it. Sorry, Tim. Two consequences of the advent of the network platforms. The return of monopoly capitalism. My good friend Peter Thiel explaining why monopolies are awesome in his book Zero to One, which was a huge bestseller, not least in China. I'll come to China in a minute. 
Scott Galloway's four horsemen of the apocalypse, each one controlling one of your vital organs. Google is your brain. Facebook's your heart. Amazon's your gut where you do the consumption. And I won't say exactly what Apple is, except that phones are status symbols, I suppose. The advent of monopoly capitalism is kind of mind-blowing enough, and certainly not something that many people predicted, if any. Even more important is what the network platforms have done to democracy, and that's really what I want to focus on with the remaining time I have. If you were paying attention to the importance of social media during the 2016 election, you spotted that Donald Trump's probability of beating Hillary Clinton was way higher than all the political scientists and pundits were saying who were using polling data and models of the pre-social media political system. He dominated her. He dominated her on Facebook. He dominated her on Twitter. He actually dominated her also on Google search. And just eight years before, these platforms had been marginal in their importance. To understand what was going to happen in November 2016, you had to see that this had happened. Brad Pascal, who was Trump's digital director, put it very nicely. These social platforms are all invented by very liberal people on the West and East Coast, and we figure out how to use it to push conservative values. I don't think they thought that would ever happen. The, the Economist nearly got it right, social media's threat to democracy. No, no, there's nothing undemocratic about populists winning elections. The real threat was to liberalism. The real threat was to, to be precise, the political middle ground. That was the thing that was threatened. We now know, and with every week we know more, that the Russians used Facebook and Twitter to disseminate fake news and extreme views. My favorite meme of Russian origin is the one on the bottom right there. Satan, if I win, Clinton wins. Jesus, not if I can help it. Press like to help Jesus win. <laughs> I gotta hand it to Ivan in St. Petersburg. That is pretty smart shit. But here are a couple of interesting things. Number one, it turns out that liberals were more likely to retweet Russian content than conservatives. I, I guess this was, can you believe the crap these conservatives say? Uh, and the other thing is that Russian content was probably around 1% of all the political content on social media during the 2016 election campaign. That's not a lot. Most of the content was homegrown. Now, you can take your choice, depending on how you like to think about the historical process. In a very close election, everything can be regarded as the critical variable, from the weather to the Russians to the fact that Hillary Clinton didn't go to Wisconsin. But I want to suggest that the most plausible counterfactual for 2016 is that if it had not been for the network platforms, Donald Trump could not have won. If you imagine the election without Facebook, without Twitter, without YouTube, let's not forget, it would have been very hard for the Trump campaign to overcome 
its financial disadvantage. Facebook advertising is the killer app of modern politics because it's targeted, precision targeted, and cheap. And this is the key insight of 2016. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, things go very differently. China builds a firewall around its own internet and essentially keeps the Western, the US companies out. We laugh and say, that's like trying to nail jello to a wall, as Bill Clinton famously put it. And the Chinese said, watch us nail jello to the wall. Watch us also build the only tech companies in the world that can rival yours, which they proceeded to do. Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent are the only rivals in the world to the big internet companies we sometimes refer to by the acronym FANG. And another amazing thing, not only do the Chinese match Silicon Valley, in some domains they do better than Silicon Valley, like in mobile payments and in processing speed. The next time you're in China, if you haven't been for a while, you'll notice that everybody pays for things with their phones, and they laugh at you when you take out your credit card. That's because they have pulled ahead in fintech. And the ability that the big Chinese tech companies have to process vast numbers of transactions, not only exploiting the scale of the Chinese market, but increasingly expanding abroad into other emerging markets, also gives them an advantage in the artificial intelligence arms race. Unlike here, in China, the square and the tower at least appear to be in harmony. Jack Ma, last year, before he got his marching orders from Xi Jinping, said at a Communist Party conference, the political and legal system of the future is inseparable from big data. Bad guys won't even be able to walk into the square. I got a little kind of cold, shivery feeling in my spine when I read that quotation. First, I thought, excellent, he used the word square. This will help my book. <laughs> and then I thought, wait, what does he mean by the square? Oh, yeah. In China, there's only one square. This was a coded reference to the way in which AI, big data, can be used to prevent there ever being another 1989 in Tiananmen Square. There are three models. Three ways of dealing with the problems that we've created with technology. The Chinese model is clear. The network platforms of China will be subordinated to the wishes of the party, and if necessary, if possible, a system of social credit will be built on the basis of the individual citizen's data that you might think of as totalitarianism 2.0. 1984, but with a portable telescreen that you volunteer to be under surveillance by. The European approach is different. The Europeans have no technology companies worth talking about. All they can do is tax, regulate, and fine the American companies, and that is what they're proceeding to do. George Soros at Davos earlier this year said, it's only a matter of time before the global dominance of the US uh, IT monopolies is broken. 
EU competition, uh, competition commissioner Vestager will be their nemesis. But what happens here? What happens in the United States where these companies were born, where the internet was created? That's not clear. All I think I can say with any confidence is that there will be a struggle between the tower and the square. And it began with this little exchange on social media last year, and it is escalating to a remarkable extent this year. Mainly because conservatives have come to believe that they are going to be discriminated against by the network platforms because they are all run by liberals, and it will never be 2016 again. In my conceptual framework, this is the old battle between the square and the tower. If you think of Silicon Valley as the square and, and Trump Tower as the, the tower. But the difference is that, and this is another pa parallel with the 16th and 17th century, outside actors are just free to join in. The whole saga of the caravan, remember the caravan? To a remarkable extent, stories about the caravan of would-be illegal immigrants stroke asylum seekers marching towards the US border intent on deciding the outcome of the midterms, that whole story was generated on Facebook groups, groups which turn out on close inspection to have foreign administrators. If you think things have been fixed at Facebook or fixed at YouTube, you've drunk the Kool-Aid again. Let me conclude, because I've gone on long enough. What can we learn from my big analogy? What can that short then, that very near 16th and 17th century experience of polarization, conflict, fake news, driven by a technological disruption, what can it teach us about today? Well, the answer is, we need a cyber Westphalia. We need to end our 30 years war, preferably before it begins. In 1648, Europeans finally drew a line under 130 years of religious conflict. It was done with complex, two complex treaties, which defined what we now think of today as the sovereignty of, of states. Well, I want to suggest to you this evening that we need to get there, preferably without the intervening strife. This is my last slide, but it's got a lot of content. It's actually a single slide digesting a 20,000-word paper that was published last week by the Hoover Institution where I work, entitled, What is to be done? And in that paper, which is available free uh, on the Hoover website, I try to address what we do. And I go through the six ideas that are kind of out there 
and I reject two and a half of them. I don't think it makes any difference whether there is net neutrality or not. That's just about the balance of power and profit between internet service providers and network platforms. It doesn't change a thing. I don't think that antitrust legislation can be resuscitated, as Tim Wu and others believe, and that these companies can be broken up. At least I don't think it can be done fast enough, given the strong bias of the US courts against the old version, the Brandeis version of antitrust, and in favor of the post-1960s Bork version. I think it's not a viable project. In any case, there are natural monopolies in the realm of networks, and this will be, I think, a blind alley. There needs to be regulation more than there has been and more effective regulation than there has been, but we mustn't make the mistake of thinking, oh, they're utilities, we should regulate them the way we regulated the railroads. What I argue in this paper is for three distinct steps. The first is to get rid of the strange, now anachronistic rule that exempts the network platforms from liability for the content that they carry on their platforms. This goes back to the mid-1990s when most of these companies didn't exist and now makes no sense when they're the biggest companies in the world. Section 230 makes no sense when essentially these are the biggest content publishers in history. 80% of Americans, most of the people in this room, get their news via referral from either Google or Facebook. The pretense that they're just tech companies, that the liability for the content belongs with the original traditional media producer or the user who posted the, the comment, that seems to me an anachronism. But even as we expose the network platforms to liability for the content that they produce or publish, we must ensure that they don't become the censors of our public sphere. And that is the tendency that we currently see, partly under European pressure, partly because of European regulation. More and more is being done in the name of community standards. It's a slippery slope if we leave the network platforms to decide what is hate speech and what is not what should appear in the rankings and what should not. That is too much power for private corporations to wield. Far too much. And that's why I make another proposal, which is to say that they should uphold the First Amendment because they have become the public sphere. And that's a controversial proposal. But I think it's necessary if we are to avoid the fate of a kind of privatized China in which content is censored by Facebook and Google on our behalf in deference to increasingly restrictive notions of what is hate speech. Last but not least, and this is the most Westphalian part of it, we need urgently an international convention on cyber war. We've had such conventions before on everything from piracy to biological weapons. The great powers represented today 
by the five permanent members of the UN Security Council need to recognize that this process of constant violation of one another's sovereignty, which is the essence of what happened in 2016, is dangerous to all of them. Now, there's a problem with that, which is to get Russia to stop behaving like a rogue regime on alternate days and a great power on the other days. But one lesson of the 17th century is that that can be done. The habit of violating sovereignty, which has been re-established in our time, can be broken. That is what they achieved in Westphalia in 1648. I hope I've persuaded you that history plus network science provide a useful way to think about our contemporary problems. I hope I've persuaded you, sir, that the analogy is not a frivolous one, but actually a deadly serious one. And now all I need to do is urge you to buy the book. Remember, you don't need to read it. <laughs> you just need to own it. Uh, Thank you for paying attention to me and invite Stuart Brand to come and join me up on the stage. Thanks very much. He's got a lot of questions in, in his hand. It's quite worrying. And that's a, another form of applause when you get lots of questions. Um, sometimes we don't. Um, Kevin Kelly, who manages the questions, managed to put his on top. <laughs> <laughs> That's his privilege. It's a hierarchy, really. It looks like a network. Uh, he's asking if the Internet founders, who are probably most of them still alive, had known history, had studied with you, how should the Internet social media have been created differently in the 90s? It's a great question. Words, you know, here's a counterfactual, basically, as policy. Um, and I remember a lot of the people who did that were studying what happened when the printing press came along. Yeah. And we're very excited about it and a little bit worried about it, but not worried enough from what you're saying. I think if you, if you look back on, on the way the printing press developed, there was a for-profit wing that ultimately did finance itself by selling ads. And it evolved into newspapers and magazines. But that was only a fraction of all the printed content that was out there. Most printed content was accessible free through things called libraries. And libraries were non-profit. They did come along right early. Absolutely. Well, Public they'd already libraries? existed. They'd already existed. Public libraries gradually began to uh, spread in the Protestant uh, mm -hmm. realms because, remember, Protestantism insisted on literacy. A country like mine, Scotland, went from very low literacy to very high literacy because of the Reformation. Schools had libraries. Books were regarded as a public good. And this meant that most printed content was not provided by profit-making institutions. It was essentially free and, crucially, catalogued in increasingly effective, and I'll call them objective ways. Anybody who spent time in one of the great libraries of the world, say the Cambridge University Library, mm -hmm. knows that the books are sorted in such a way that you find the book that you're after, and next to it are books on similar topics. This is an incredibly valuable thing if you're doing serious research. Google is not like that. You may think Google is like that, but you're wrong because that is not how search works. So I think when we look back on the evolution of the internet, 
The fatal mistake was to have too much for profit and not enough, well, call it Wikipedia, not enough that was non-profit. Under the printing press, by maintaining a very large non-profit sector, the network remained distributed. And that was probably the original sin of the internet, to, to allow the sale of ads to be the driver of revenue for increasingly powerful corporations. I'll say one more thing, because it's a great question. If you look back on the events that led from the foundation of Amazon to the dominance of the network platforms in our time, it was a kind of slow burn. It was only really in the last 10 years that the monopoly capitalism aspect became apparent. So I don't think one can be too harsh on the people who designed the internet and the World Wide Web. They thought it would stay distributed. I think that was Tim Berners-Lee's vision. The printing press had stayed distributed. Even the most powerful newspaper barons like William Randall First did not get anywhere close to the market shares of Facebook and Google today. It's very surprising that we got to this place. And I don't think we can blame ourselves for not predicting it. So you study economics a lot, and you did a book, The Ascent of Money. Um, what's your sense of why, unlike with books, this kind of very quick, very powerful central, the sort of re-centralization happened? What's the economic driver of that? Well, there are two answers to that question. One's just the classic one, that, that scale works. Yeah. I mean, Reid Hoffman has his new uh, book out, Masters of Scale, Blitz Scaling, I think the book is called. And what that shows is that the same old thing is true of internet companies as was true of motor companies. Mm -hmm. you know, there are returns to increasing returns to scale. But the other thing which is really powerful here is quite separate and has to do with the nature of network uh, platforms, the economics of two-sided markets. Mm -hmm. it, it turns out that in the domain of networks, the, the, the power law, uh, or the Zips law rather, applies more strongly under Zips law in a network market. Uh, it's a kind of 90% uh, uh, to the winner, 9% to the runner-up, and 1% to everybody else outcome. And, and that means that we have a double economic tendency towards concentration. Again, that wasn't, I think, well understood, and it's only recently that economists have begun to see the peculiar quality of these so-called two-sided markets where a company like Facebook acts as a platform mm -hmm. in which uh, consumers can connect with, with sellers. Uh, it looks like it's free, but actually it's anything but free because the sellers are paying so much to get the attention of the consumers. All of this, I think, uh, came as a surprise to economists who, who, by and large, lagged behind the development of the network mm -hmm. platforms. There are very, very few economists. Matthew Jackson at Stanford's an exception who kind of saw the significance of this. Um, and then, of course, you had uh, the problem that I referred to earlier, the, the problem of the way that antitrust law had evolved in the United States. The test was just, uh, is the consumer harmed? That was the Robert Bork test. Now. Uh, if you ever mention antitrust to the likes of Jeff Bezos or any of the other titans of the valley, they laugh because it'll be so easy to win those cases under current law. You'll just say, dude, it's free. <laughs> and the conversation's over. So I think for that reason, there was never going to be much pushback, even as these firms developed 
really very, very dominant positions in different parts of the market. I, I mean, Amazon has a total monopoly on audiobooks at the moment. I mean, it has basically complete control of, the, of an increasingly popular market. I mean, I bet, hands up if you listen to books rather than read them, right? Yeah, um, it's, that's a complete monopoly. And, and we, we actually don't have the, the legal tools to stop that at the moment. And I think it'll be really hard to change. Tim Wu's got this new book out, which is essentially, let, let's get back to antitrust. And it's almost, it's a trendy thing. You know, the, there's a sort of hipster antitrust movement. You have to grow a goatee beard to belong to it and wear a beret and, and live in Portland. But it's, it's going to be so hard to achieve that, given the way the courts are set up. And I, I, there, that's one reason that I kind of don't see antitrust as the way to go. Well, there's another thing that drove scale, I think, exponentially is the one that <clears throat> the people who were making all of that that were quoting to each other was Metcalf's law, that yeah. the power of a net right. goes up is basically the square of the number of the nodes it, in the exactly. net. And so Jeff came along and said, uh, we're going to lose money for a long time because our whole function is to get big fast, and yeah. the get big fast thing took off. And then what it seems like and China may be the interesting counterexample, is these things scaled up so fast and so far. And so the 2.27 billion Facebook users, uh, Mark and is not going to know what every one of them is up to, not even remotely. Well, that's and he's complaining about the size of his company. He doesn't know everything going on in the 10,000 right. people working for Facebook. So scale has this sort of built-in obscurity, apparently. Yeah. And yet you're saying that China isn't facing that problem. Well, I think there probably are more than they would like to admit, okay. uh, in the sense that when you spend time in, in China, and, and I, I, I'm a visiting professor at Tsinghua. I actually do most of my teaching there because they don't really like me teaching at Stanford. So I, I go to China. Um, and there, um, what's striking is that uh, one can say very frank things that are quite critical of the regime on WeChat. At the time, last time I was there, there was a lot of negative uh, meme circulation with respect to Xi Jinping's appearance at a military exercise in Russia. Hmm. So the idea that they have the whole thing locked down, the allusion I made to 1984, may be a bit misleading. What they can do is they can have surveillance over what people are doing how they're spending and what they're saying. And that is a power that none of the 20th century totalitarians had. Can they, from that surveillance, maintain their power indefinitely? That's another question. And I think history would lead you to be somewhat skeptical about the proposition that a highly centralized system rooted in the mid-20th century vision of one-party rule can coexist with giant online networks in which there is at least the appearance of, of free speech. I'm somewhat more skeptical about the viability of this, of this regime under these conditions, but it's certainly a different situation from the one that we find ourselves in today, because at least it's clear in China that the, the square is subordinate to the tower. Whereas here we are in this strange situation of collision, mm -hmm. where there is in fact an ongoing and I think escalating conflict between Washington and Silicon Valley, and it's not clear how that is going to turn out. At the moment, there's no question, Facebook and Google have enormous power. They dominate the public sphere. And what we've seen in 2016, and I think we've also seen it this year, is that that's not a stable state of affairs for democracy, because they really don't take seriously enough 
the responsibilities that I believe come with the kind of power they have. Okay, so China is pushing ahead with artificial intelligence very strongly. They're using it for face recognition, among other things. And <clears throat> one imagines a security state like we used to see in Eastern Europe, where a very, you know, there was a large amount of basically a citizenry surveilling other parts of the you know, Stasi had this huge operation. They were not able to hire robots to watch <laughs> the citizens right. of those countries. And places like China or the US or others that come to mind can. And so does this hierarchical potential for very powerful one-sided surveillance get potentially enhanced to a, a new kind of level that we haven't seen before. Well, what's clear is that if the surveillance exists, it can, even in a democracy, be used, uh, conceivably used for political ends. Uh, one, once it exists, even if it's currently in the hands of private sector actors, you should not assume that it can never be nationalized and taken over by the state. That's the first observation. The lesson of the 20th century is that any corporation can be nationalized, uh, that, that those sorts of political events are far from low probability. Like AT&T was back in the day, in a sense. Well, I'm thinking also of the way in which, uh, in, even in the recent past, we mm -hmm. saw uh, the entire uh, government-sponsored entities that run the housing industry taken into what was politely called conservatorship, but they were basically nationalized during the mm -hmm. financial crisis. So I think we need to be wary that we are simultaneously building the, the tools of the surveillance state in what we still think of as a free, uh, as a free society. This is a, a big risk to run. And nor is it desirable that those powers should remain in the hands of, of more or less unregulated private actors. I mean, I don't feel better that I'm under the surveillance of Big Zucker than under the surveillance of Big Brother. It's, it's not really a radically different state of affairs. If my privacy's gone, it's gone. And I don't really have any way of knowing uh, when it will be that in time of national emergency, a federal government will simply say, we demand access to the data. The Chinese have it, we're at war, mm. it's a national emergency, and you must comply. One of the lessons of, uh, of history is that no matter how powerful corporations may appear at their apogee, think Standard Oil, mm -hmm. as well as AT&T, they can be, with remarkable ease, brought under the control of government, particularly in times of emergency, or simply when the public turns against them, as happened to, to Standard Oil. So mm -hmm. I, I think that the point I'm really trying to get at in this new paper, which the last slide summarized, is that the status quo in the United States today is not stable. We can't leave things as they are because the big tech companies have way too much power and we can't really, we can't really believe their protestations that they'll behave better in the future. I think that's an extremely important point. There certainly don't seem to me sufficient incentives for them to behave better in the future when their business models are predicated on engagement. They have to show that you're engaged with the content to justify what they charge the advertisers. And you will be engaged by the sensational, I'm afraid even rational people like the ones in this audience will be seduced by the extreme views and the fake news. The business model inherently favors polarization. And I don't see anything that has changed in the last two years 
uh, to alter the incentive for these companies to promote in their recommendation lists that which is sensational. So there are some fundamental things that I don't think have been fixed, and that's what I've been wrestling with. How do you fix those problems without creating a very powerful federal regulator, which, that, which effectively transfers the power to the state? Uh, I'm usually described as a conservative. By comparison with most academics, that's probably true. But I'm really a classical liberal. I worry more about individual liberty than I do about, oh, I don't know, traditional values. I, my views are those of the Scottish Enlightenment. And what I'm trying to come up with when I say, let's create greater liabilities for these companies, are essentially ways of constraining them, forcing them to behave themselves better, that don't empower the government, and potentially hand the power of the surveillance company to the state. Well, here's a question from Sean Jewell, basically relating to your piece of of history accelerating, it says, uh, seems like tech is progressing faster than our government's ability to regulate. Is this novel? This has happened previously in history. Governments, this is one of the things that, you know, so long now has this layered thing of how commerce moves very rapidly and governance, not necessarily governments, which turn over, but the nature of governance is slower than that. And um, in these kind of debates, we're always saying, well, that's terrible because governance can't keep up with right. what needs to be governed. Has that happened before, and what do you have to say about Always, that? Always, that's the standard pattern. The innovation doesn't come from the hierarchy, it doesn't come from the government. The in innovation comes from the network. Mm -hmm. That's very clear. The Industrial Revolution isn't the product of a few brilliant people who dreamt up the steam engine. The Industrial Revolution happens because there's a network of people, some academic, some just almost self-taught engineers, who together solve a series of problems that really were first thought of properly in the scientific revolution, but didn't really get thought of technologically until the late 18th century. So the network's creative, but here's a really critical difference. The technologies of the Industrial Revolution that were so important in propelling the world out of what was more or less sustained poverty, by and large produced networks with a hub-and-spoke architecture. Think of railroads. Uh, think of the telegraphs. Think of the steamship companies. So that Industrial Revolution technologies, which were certainly not the creation of the state, lent themselves very readily to state control. As long as you controlled the hub, you controlled the railroad network, you controlled the telegraph system. So in the 19th century, what happens is that private entrepreneurs beginning in the British Isles invent railroads and they invent telegraphs and they start building them. It's, it's entirely done by private enterprise. And within a very short space of time, these technologies are adopted by European governments, uh, and then they're adopted in North America, and they're rolled out, and they're extraordinarily easy to control centrally. The 20th century regimes that we think of as the totalitarian regimes, beginning with the Soviet Union, understood that with hub-and-spoke technology, he who controls the hub controls the network. Stalin literally controlled the central switchboard of the Soviet telephone network and would routinely, as Steve Kotkin shows in his brilliant biography, tap the phones of other members of the Politburo. So I think the difference in our time is that what happened in the 70s was essentially the Pentagon said, look, we're kind of busy with the Vietnam mess. Could you just kind of do what you want to do out there with, with what was then ARPANET? There was a moment at which the state basically let go 
of what was to become the internet. And the, and the innovation happened in, in a kind of, almost a fit of absence of mind by the national security state. Uh, it grew very rapidly, and because of the way that it was designed, it was highly decentralized. I actually have a lovely picture on my office wall that caught Eric Schmidt's eye the other day as he was passing it, uh, of the original ARPANET, mm -hmm. uh, which has a kind of square shape, and all the different nodes are marked on it, like Stanford and Harvard, and Eric was pointing out where he actually was in the Xerox node. There's one little node down in the bottom right-hand corner that just says Pentagon. <laughs> it's not in the middle. It's not the center of this kind of hub-and-spoke type architecture. It's just one node in what is a distributed network. So that's different in our time. Here the technologies raced ahead precisely because it was designed to be decentralized. Um, and nobody, I think, expected it not to stay that way. Um, two questions, one from Alex Pico, one from Kevin Kelly, both basically raising the question of television and where it fits in. Um, hearkening back to 2016, uh, you've done a counterfactual of what if there was no social media. Uh, a similar one would be what if there was no Fox News. Right. The, the process of polarization, let me make it clear, predates Twitter. Uh, this was already a pretty polarized country uh, even before the advent of, of the internet. What the cable TV revolution did was to end those regulations that had enforced uh, rules on political coverage, rules that would require even airtime for rival candidates, and created a new architecture in which you could have liberal news and conservative news. But I think what's striking about the last 10 years is the way in which our pre-existing division, uh, and it's a division not just between liberals and conservatives, there's also this exhausted middle of people who think of themselves as independents, but this division has been exacerbated by social media. And it's interesting to watch the way that the established uh, media, not only TV channels, but also newspapers, got into a curious feedback loop with social media where they would mm -hmm. notice that their social media numbers were boosted by Trump appearing. This is the Morning Joe story. And they would say, gee, we're doing really well on Twitter this morning. We should have him back. Mm. And so there was this curious symbiosis between what we think of as mainstream media or traditional media and, and the new media uh, to the point that the one became somewhat parasitic on the other. So I think the polarization is not new. There have been other periods in American history of great division. Let's not forget there was, an actual civil, there was an actual civil war. Right now, we just have a kind of virtual one. But I think the social uh, networks have made it worse. And there's lots of good evidence for that. Jonathan Haidt, my friend at NYU, whose brilliant book with Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind, you should all read. He had a great illustration of this, showing the increase in the proportion of people who say they hate the other party. And that, that's something really quite recent. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think we're in, in new territory, and it's not right to say, oh, it's, it's, just what it, it, it's just the way it was. Because the way it was in the early days of Fox News and the way it was then on CNN was very different. I mean, if one went back now and looked at the content that those networks were putting out in the early days, mm -hmm. uh, one would be quite startled by how bland it would seem. 
So networks are described as <clears throat> sort of three modes, centralized, decentralized, and so-called distributed. Well, there's basically not so much in the way of hub activity. <clears throat> I was in Prague a couple of weeks ago for a gathering of the Ethereum blockchain crowd at DevCon 4. And there was this groundswell of hopefulness and, and kind of joy about the process of developing a, a seriously distributed network that can cut across a lot of things which tend to keep flying into the hierarchical mode. And toward the end of your book, and you did this book about money after all, you, you would call attention to Bitcoin mm -hmm. and smart contracts and, and blockchain in general. Where do you see that fitting into the story as it comes to pass or doesn't come to pass? Yeah, it's a, a great question. And to all the Bitcoin holders in the audience and on the platform, it's been a pretty bad time. Since down January, down below yeah, right, 6,000 right. today, ouch. Uh, you have some. In Nuri, I do. Nuriel Rabini is gloating as we speak. He's uh, sought to relaunch his career as the prophet of the doom of crypto. <laughs> I, I have a, a less negative view than uh, Nuriel, and I, I've actually written at great, greater length on this subject hmm. in what will be a new edition of The Ascent of Money, out early next year, with two new chapters taking the story up to the present, and one of the, the last chapter is entitled From the Euro to Ethereum. And the argument that I make there is that there's no question that there will be at least one use case for, for blockchain, a meaningful use case. It's not clear that it will be money. Uh, what we have in Bitcoin, I would think of as an option on digital gold. It, it might turn out to be something with gold-like qualities that you might, if you had a million dollars, want to have one or two or three percent of your portfolio in. I forget, do you approve of gold or have you? My view is that if you, want, if you have a million dollars, lucky you, if you have a large uh, amount of money and can afford to have a diversified portfolio, you should. If, you, if you're a regular uh, professor, you probably are long real estate whether you like it or not because <laughs> most of your portfolio is that incredibly expensive house that you had to buy near the Stanford campus. So this is a, a sort of recommendation for the high net worth individuals in the room, not for the regular folk. Uh, but if, you're a, if you have a relatively high net worth, let's say north of a million dollars, then you might want to have one or two percent of it in, in something like gold, something like Bitcoin, just because it behaves differently from the rest of your portfolio mm -hmm. and is unlikely to be wiped out if the stock market crashes. It'll just behave differently. The problem with Bitcoin, and this is a long conversation, I'll try and keep it short, is, is a couple of things. One, while it might be a cool store of value, remains to be seen, or at least an interesting asset to own, it's definitely not something that you would transact in. It's difficult for transactions. So, so it's not making the cut as money conventionally understood. The other problem is that even although it was designed to be decentralized, it's funny how the mining got concentrated super fast and air in China. Mm. That definitely wasn't part of the plan, and it's an illustration of how the best laid schemes of, of distributed network designers often go a glay, as the How Scots put it. How does the Chinese it. government uh, treat the ownership of Bitcoin in China? Well, the interesting thing about the Chinese government strategy is, is that it wants simultaneously to prevent Bitcoin being held by Chinese citizens, but control the network via mining. 
And that's not a particularly enticing prospect, given that if you have more than 50% of the mining, then you potentially control the whole blockchain and you can alter it. So here's the way I'm thinking about it now. It's not dead, but it's vulnerable, and it's especially vulnerable to state-mandated digital currency. Here I agree with something that, that Nuril Rubini just published. It's what I say, actually, in The Square and the Tower, that the Chinese are most likely to create Bityuan at some point. They're experimenting with blockchain-based currencies just to see if they can make it work. But they certainly aren't going to make a non-state-controlled digital currency uh, legal tender in China. So the use case for blockchain probably isn't money. It, okay. it may very well be that there are uses for blockchain. I know there are some people in the audience who take a different view, but there may be uses when it comes to the storage of data in forms that don't require high frequency of change. Title mm -hmm. deeds is the case that most often gets cited. But, uh, but I guess the story of the crypto experiment really is a chapter in, in financial history that illustrates a point you made earlier, Stuart, the way in which innovation runs ahead of regulation. A lot of terrible analogies were drawn last year with the tulip mania. <laughs> You, you may remember that anybody who didn't understand Bitcoin would say, oh, it's tulip mania, because it saved trying to understand it. Uh, but it, it's not remotely like tulip mania. What it is like is a phase of innovation that produced the, the instrument we call the stock uh, or equity. And that innovation in the early 18th century produced bubbles, just as we've seen in the last 12 months, uh, chaos, fraud. Uh, it's a free-for-all very similar to the Mississippi bubble and the South Sea bubble of the early 18th century, at the end of which mm -hmm. the notion of equity finance survived. There really was a use case for this. Right, right, right. That's so I think it will be somewhat similar here. In the end, something will come of it. I don't think it all ends up as zero. Can it stay... Say use cases developed for blockchain apart from currency. Um, as these secure public ledgers that uh, really, really are distributed. Do you see that as some kind of, if, if, if that develops, is that some kind of Wikipedia-like uh, leavening to the problems you see here? Potentially. Uh, one of the most interesting writers on this subject lives in, these, these, uh, in this town, Sam Lesson, whose essays for the information I found very illuminating. And I, I think he is one of those blockchain believers who's attracted by the technology because it has libertarian implications. Decentralized and not controlled by the state. And you'd have to be a kind of natural born authoritarian to want that to fail. I think my instinct is I want this to work. I'd love there to be a use case. I particularly like the idea that some data will be stored in a decentralized way. We've been dependent on centralized archives for much, much longer than the printing press has existed. Mm -hmm. One of the defining functions of a state, going back to the medieval period, is that it has an archive. And in that archive, truth resides. Now, in a free society, that's sort of unproblematic. Um, we don't really think twice about the fact that there are these things called the National Archives in Washington where you can go and do historical research. As an historian, I depend on those archives and, and frequently use them. But you can't, as an historian, ignore the fact that very often 
the state's central control of information is abused. Mm -hmm. uh, the archives get uh, weeded. Uh, and now we're back in the realm of 1984. The state decides what data are preserved and what are destroyed. So the idea that some information could be stored in ways that did not require the state as the third party arbiter, that seems attractive well, and likely be, to work. You won't be surprised that the Internet Archive based here in town, uh, which is a non, seriously non-government entity, is very much in bed with some of the blockchain folks and they're looking for ways to enhance each other's capability. I, I think as a, as a student of, of political theory, I, I side strongly with Alexis de Tocqueville's view that liberty is dependent on decentralization. It's one of the central arguments in democracy in America and in the old regime and the revolution that the problem in Europe was, particularly in France, was excessive centralization and the great strength of the United States, Tocqueville saw, was its decentralization. Well, lo and behold, we've ended up being pretty centralized. And I think we need to think of technological ways, but also of good old-fashioned political ways to be more decentralized. That should be a kind of goal that liberals and conservatives can agree on. We should be a little bit more like Switzerland in our governance and a little less like, like France. <laughs> um, so you as a conservative, um, it must be interesting times. I think the liberals haven't really had to change their worldview very much, but uh, you know, the, David Brooks is sort of complaining to the world that as a conservative feels like he doesn't have a home anymore. There's no political party he can call his own um, because of the, what's happened basically with conservative politics in the uh, last couple of elections. And here in California, Orange County used to be totally red. It was totally Republican, now it's totally blue. And, and uh, there's a super majority of Democrats in our state legislature and so on. Um, are these interesting times for you as a conservative? <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a ruder way of asking that question. Of course. Um, are you or have you ever been a defender of Donald Trump? That, that'll be the question asked in the great investigative inquiries held after right. uh, Donald Trump's uh, departure from the White House. I mean, I, I think, as I said, I don't really see myself as a conservative. I'm a classical liberal. I, I'm rooted in the teachings of the, the late 18th century Enlightenment thinkers. And the good news is that late 18th century ideas turn out to work quite well. And did uh, those come out of literacy? Did that come out of the printing press? Oh, absolutely. I mean, after the, the, Reformation? The, the reason the Enlightenment happens in those places where it happens is that they'd had the Reformation. The thing about the Reformation is it has this unintended consequence. You teach people to read so that they can read the Bible, uh, and then they can read anything. It's the great un unintended consequence of the 16th century. And in Scotland, which in the initial phase of the Reformation is basically like uh, Afghanistan uh, under the Taliban. I mean, you have this sort of ultra-Calvinist regime uh, in the south of Scotland and warring tribes in the north. It's a complete Afghanistan situation. In the space of 100 years, because of literacy, mm. it leaves behind these crazy battles of the Reformation and, and arrives at the ideas of Adam Smith and, and David mm -hmm. Hume and the rest. So that's a kind of reason for optimism. And the ideas of the Enlightenment mm -hmm. spread through a network. I talk about this in the book. The Enlightenment was a network. Nobody sat at head office saying, what do we do in the Enlightenment today? There's no <laughs> chief executive 
of Enlightenment Inc. It's actually just a bunch, I'm really sorry to say this, of white guys. There are some women, it's mostly guys. Uh, writing to one another, publishing stuff. S Jefferson is sitting, getting his collection of books shipped over. Mm. Franklin too. The ideas of the Enlightenment cross the Atlantic through the Enlightenment network. They go very global. It's remarkable how far, say, Voltaire's ideas travel. And out of these ideas comes a design for a republic which is going to be new, in its new and, and innovative in being designed to avoid tyranny. Now, the classical theory of politics said, if you have a democracy, it'll become a tyranny. Mm -hmm. That just always happens. That was the standard view right the way from the ancient... And they they world studied the history of the founding fathers. Deeply. They're, they're looking at the Republican, or at the, uh, the Roman Republic, at the Venetian Republic, at the Iroquois League. They're constantly asking historical questions about how can we avoid that happening here? Mm. And they come up with the notion of checks and balances. That's central to the way the Constitution's designed. It's very counterintuitive. Let's mm. not have power in one institution. Let's design it to be a kind of institutionalized conflict. And the good news is, it works. Alexander Hamilton brilliantly foresaw in a number of speeches and letters that some opportunistic demagogic figure would be bound to become president at some point. He explains exactly how it will happen. And the goal of the Constitution is to make sure that that person cannot overthrow liberty because that person's power will be checked by the other parts of the Constitution. When Trump was elected, some of my best friends, including Andrew Sullivan, uh, became overwhelmed with anxiety that tyranny was about to be established. Tim Snyder at Yale published on tyranny, and my attitude was, chill. The Constitution was designed for precisely this eventuality, and if you look at the results closely, at the results of the midterms, you'll see just how well it's worked. And the founding fathers must be going, job done. <laughs> Checked, balanced. Outstanding. Thank, Thank you, you very much indeed, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.